Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, March 21st, 2021, we continue our series titled, Uncommon Joy, the Book of Philippians. Today's sermon, The Reality and Responsibility of Following Jesus, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Enjoy. This morning, we're in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4, um, this is a part of 1 through 11, which is just one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. Um, after this morning, we're going to turn the next two weeks towards Easter, and then the week after Easter, we're going to pick back up in the book of Philippians to kind of finish out this passage on verses 5 through 11. I was watching TV this week, uh, I'm sorry, I waste time just like you do, uh, and the movie Spider-Man came on, the original Spider-Man, not like part nine or whatever they're on now, but the first one with uh, Tobey Maguire, you remember this one? Uh, and there's this famous line in the movie where Spider-Man, Peter Parker, is in the car with Uncle Ben in this super old hoopty thing, uh, and he, Uncle Ben turns to Spider-Man and he says this, he says, remember, with great power comes great responsibility, right? And this is one of those like all-time movie quotes type of things. And there's some some discrepancies and some arguments. Is this really from Spider-Man or is this from somebody else? Um, some say it originated from Voltaire. Some say it came from some um, leader in the French Revolution. Someone said, oh, it's got to be an American. So, of course, it was one of our presidents at some point. Or uh, who knows? But but great, great quote. And as I watched it, I was like, that's my message. That's the message for Sunday. Not the greatness part. Uh, but the responsibility part. Right? So if you came to church this morning um, expecting a message on how to be great, um, that's not this, um, but how to be responsible with the life that Christ has given us, um, that's what this message is. And what we're going to see in the passage this morning in verses 1 through 4 uh, is five realities of the Christian life. We're going to see that in verse 1 right off the bat. Five things that are true of our Christian experience because of what Christ has done. And as a result, as a result of these five realities, each of us carries three responsibilities. So again, that's where we're going this morning. Five realities that lead to three responsibilities that you and I have as followers of Christ. So let me read the passage. I'll pray for us once more and then we'll hop into it and see what God's word has for us. It starts like this. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. God, though it's my voice that's been heard, we know this morning it's your word that's been spoken, and we trust your word as the authority for our life. God, there's so many things in this passage um, that I just don't like. They frustrate me, they're difficult. Um, There's a way that I would rather live. But God, you call us to something greater. You call us to something higher. So this morning, would we see the issue is not in the text. The issue is actually in our heart. God, would we lay those issues at your feet this morning, realizing that those things died with you on the cross, that you rose again from the dead to defeat those things, so that we can truly live a life that glorifies and honors you. Holy Spirit, I ask this morning that you would open our mind um, so we can know you more. You'd open our eyes so we can see things maybe we haven't seen in the text before. We'd open our ears that, that we would hear you speaking into our life. 
that you'd open our hearts, that we'd respond in love, and as a result, you'd open our mouths, that we not only respond in worship, but respond uh, with a life that just proclaims the glorious majesty of Jesus Christ. God, everything we do this morning is for your glory and your glory alone. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Five realities that lead to three responsibilities in the Christian life. The first reality is encouragement. Encouragement. Verse 1 says, So, if, now the word if here, it actually can also be translated since or because. Um, So if you are in Christ, these things are in your life. So this says, so because these things, because of these things in your life, it's also called for us to examine our life and say, man, are these things evident? I say I'm a follower of Jesus. Does this resemble my life? Is this the reality that I find myself living in? If there is any encouragement, catch on to that word any. If you're a Bible circle word person, um, I'd even highlight that one. It's probably not a word you'd normally highlight, but why is it important? Just any. Because we're not talking about total encouragement. We're not talking about complete comfort. We're not talking about um, perfect anything. We're about any. If this has been our experience at all in this life, we have a responsibility in response. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, what's encouragement? The word encouragement means to come alongside of someone. This is what you do when you encourage someone. Right when you like speak life over somebody, or or you, you call a friend and you say, "Hey, I just wanted to, to tell you I'm praying for you, and I hope you had a great day." Or um, you know, it means a lot to my wife is when uh, an older mom comes alongside of her and said, "Hey, I know you feel like your kids are crazy," which is an accurate statement. Um, but you know what, mom? I just want to let you know you're doing a great job. You're doing a fantastic job. Do you know how uplifting that is to a young mom? And how encouraging it is for them to know that someone's coming alongside of them, to see them, to care for them, to love them, to realize the craziness that is raising children because you've been there and you've done that. But just to come alongside and say, you know what, you're doing a great job. Or it's super encouraging when you all come alongside us pastors and say, you know what, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. That means a lot. It means a lot. And when we come alongside you and say, you know, I just want to let you know we're praying for you. I care about you. I'm here for you. Come visit you in the hospital. Come care for you. Have people bring food. It's just it's encouragement. And if you are in Christ, this is our reality. Jesus, Emmanuel. What's that mean? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus' birth. He came alongside of us. You look at the Holy Spirit. We're going to see a second in John 16. What's the Holy Spirit do? He comes alongside of us. He participates in our life. He helps us. He encourages us along the way. And if you are in Christ, that is your experience. That is your reality. God encourages your heart. The second reality we see says any comfort from love. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. Comfort here means to alleviate someone's pain. Uh, When you think comfort here, I don't want you to think like um, the cozy, comfy beanbag chair you used to have. Or I don't want you to think of like cold sheets with warm snuggles, right? Like the comfort of that. The comfort here is like a warm hug on a hard day. 
Comfort here is when your kids hit heads on the trampoline. Again, when you wrap them up and say, man, I love you, I'm going to help you. Or when you, you kiss their boo-boo and put a band-aid on it. Or your wife comes home from, from her job or your husband come home from his job and they just had a really difficult day and you come up and you comfort them. You're their shoulder to cry on. You're their friend to laugh with. You're their person to just process through pain with. We comfort those in our life. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's a title given to him in the scriptures. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let me ask you a question real quick. How many of you have experienced the comfort of God in a painful trial in your life? That's what this verse promises. That God comes alongside us to comfort that comfort us. But then it goes on past that. It says God does that so that we may go and comfort other people who are, or are experiencing similar things. So follow-up question. How many of you, in, in that painful trial, the comfort you received from God, have been able to extend comfort to someone else because they had gone through a similar trial? Right? That is our Christian experience. That's the reality of our life. Yes, God allows us to go through difficulty. He allows us to go through suffering. The end of chapter 1 promised this, by the way. He not only granted us to believe, but also granted us to suffer. Right? To be engaged in conflict. That is also part of the Christian life. But God comes alongside us to encourage us. He encourages us. He comforts us. And then we in turn go and comfort other people. The Christian reality is we receive God's comfort through God. And we also receive His comfort through God's people. That is our reality. God comforts us in our affliction. The third thing, He says, any participation in the Spirit. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. Participation, what's that? It's the same word here that we saw earlier with partnership. We have partnered with God as we live this Christian life. I think about it like this. I could tell my eight-year-old Elijah, uh, and Jude will be seven this week on Friday, I could tell them, hey, go in the backyard, build me a shed. Does that seem like an impossible task for like a nine-year-old and seven-year-old? Absolutely it does. Get out there, build me a shed. And sometimes this is how we feel like the Christian life is. Like God has told us, hey, get out there, build a metaphorical shed. Live a perfect life for me, glorify me, honor me, praise me, speak of me all the time, raise perfect kids, be a perfect mom, be a perfect dad. That's the standard God calls us to. And in a lot of ways, we feel like you're asking me to go build you a shed. But here's the thing. If I told my kids, hey, come with me. Let's build a shed. Is that different? This is participation from the Spirit. God has said, hey, let's go live a life together. Let's go live the life I've called you to live together. You're not on your own. You don't got to live this by yourself. You don't got to build this shed on your own. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. He participates in our life. John chapter 16, verses 7 7 all the way through 15. It's not on the screen, but I encourage you to check it out later. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says, Hey, uh, I'm about to leave pretty soon. They're freaking out, right? Because to have Jesus around is a way better thing. But Jesus says, Hey, it actually works to your benefit that I go, because if I go, I'm sending the helper, the Holy Spirit. 
And what's the Holy Spirit do? Well, he says he convicts us of our sins, so he shows us that we're guilty. He guides us um, to live in the truth. He gifts us with spiritual gifts so we can better serve the church and serve God. And he also helps us glorify Jesus. It's four G's if you want to remember those things. What's the Holy Spirit do? He guilts, he guides, he gifts, he glorifies. You go to the book of Romans, it says he intercedes for us. He helps us. Man, when I can't even pray, he helps me pray. He participates in my life. I'm not just living this life on my own. He's with me now. He's in me. He's helping me do the things that Christ has called me to do. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, that's good news of your salvation, and believed in him, that's Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, circle that word guarantee if you're doing that, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's a seal. He's, he's sealed us. He sealed us to guarantee. You ever uh, eat a can of Pringles? Like all by yourself? Right? Really not that hard to do, right? You all were fine to raise your hand about, yeah, God's comforted me. But when I ask you if you ate a can of Pringles, you're like, no, no, I don't do that, right? You know when you, you pop the top off and you rip the seal? What's that seal do? It guarantees freshness. Right, same thing on a pickle jar or a, like a jar of jam or that little seal thing. It guarantees freshness. It's what a seal does. If the seal's not there, there's no guarantee. Okay, and it seems silly um, to equate what the Holy Spirit has done in my life to the same thing as that seal on a Pringles can. The seal on a Pringles can guarantees fresh. The seal on my life, the Holy Spirit, guarantees me family. There's nothing I can do to remove myself. There's nothing anyone can do to remove me from it. I am now a child of God. And the Holy Spirit in my life is going to participate in my life to help me go and do the things that Christ has called me to do. That is our reality in Christ. That's our life. God is with us, helping us live the life he's called us to live. There's a fourth thing. There's any affection If there's any affection, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection. Now this word affection is a really weird word. Uh, In fact, if you were to uh, look in the old King James Version, it doesn't say affection. It says bowels. Yeah, now you're listening. Bowels. I feel uncomfortable even saying it. Like, what do you, what is that? When I think affection, I think like PDA, right? When you're going to school, no PDA. No public displays of affection. I think like your arm around your girlfriend, arm around your boyfriend, passing notes in class, holding hands in the hallway, kissing by the lockers, like PDA like that. Right, I think of that type, but BC used the word bowels. What's that? Well, it's that like, you ever get that feeling in your gut? Right? You ever just like feel a better word for us would be burdened? Just a burden for something that you can't get rid of? Like if your kids ever stay out too late and you're waiting up in bed? I put my parents through that a few times. And you just feel that like, where are they? I need, where are they? I, I, or you ever get that feeling of like, I just need, I feel like I really need to call that person. Like I can't kick it. I can't get rid of it. Maybe it's with your job. You're like, I feel like i got to go do this thing. I gotta, I, it's just this burden you can't get rid of. Or you, maybe you've even said the phrase, you know, I just, I'm trusting my gut on this one. That's what this is. That's burden. Well, why would he use the word burden? Because that's actually how God feels towards us. 
He's burdened for us. See, somewhere along the line, some of of you were convinced that, yeah, God loves you. He doesn't like you. That's what you think. Can I just tell you you're wrong? He loves you. He likes you. He wants you. He's burdened for you. And his burden, he didn't just be burdened from a distance like he did something. He sent his son. This is what John 3.16 says. For God so loved, so loved the world, not just loved the world, not just kind of liked the world, not just tor- kind, of, uh, tor- kind of affectionate. He, he so loved them, he did something about it. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That burden that God feels for you. He wants you. He loves you. He cares about you. Maybe you're in church this morning. You're thinking like, yeah, but if God only knew. If God only knew what I did last night. The kind of shape I was in last night. If God only saw the kind of shape that I'm actually in this morning because of the things I did last night. I don't think he'd love or like me. I don't know if this is news to you. He knows all of it. And guess what? Still loves you. Still likes you. Still burdened for you. Still wants to be in relationship with you. He has affection towards each and every one of us. And there's a fifth thing, sympathy. If there's any affection and sympathy... Now, sympathy is to understand what someone's going through, right? We can all have compassion for someone, try to put ourselves in their shoes, but sympathy is to actually have been in their shoes and know the pain they feel. This is Christ towards us. He's our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to live here. He knows what it's like to feel the things you felt. He knows what it's like to face temptation. He can sympathize in every way that we can. Really every way? You sure, Tom? Yeah, very sure. You know, uh, historians say Jesus was actually most likely crucified naked because they wanted their people they were crucifying to experience maximum shame. Maybe you felt like Jesus could never understand the sexual shame that you faced in your life. He can. He sympathizes with it. He's been there. He knows what it's like to feel that kind of shame. This is our experience. We have a a king who came and died for us, who lived a life for us, who experienced life, who can sympathize with us. He he rose back to the moment. He sends his spirit to participate with us in life, to help us do the things he's called us to do. And when we experience difficult things, he comforts us both with his presence and also with his people. This is the life of a Christian. So since that is our reality... What are the responsibilities Jesus give, or God gives us? Three responsibilities of a Jesus follower. That's the next thing in your outline. He says, complete my joy, pursue unity. That's what these next things are going to point to. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Full accord and one mind. Pursue 
unity, by being of the same mind. Well, we, okay, well, let's talk about same mind for a second. Because when we think this, we think, right, I've got to get everyone else to think like me because I'm right and they're wrong. The right way to see this is obviously the way that I see this. The way I understand the world to be is obviously the right way to understand the world to be. So if we're going to be of same mind and we're going to pursue unity, that means i got to go out there and convince everyone else to think like me. No. No. Whose mind are we supposed to pursue? We're supposed to pursue the mind of Christ. So rather than us sitting down and arguing and bickering, and there's a place for that, to have healthy conversation and dialogue about things we disagree about, but what would it look like for brothers and sisters to sit down and instead of trying to like prove a point or win an argument, what would it look like for us to sit down and say, man, what would it look like to understand this from the mind of Jesus? What if that was our pursuit? To see things the way God sees them. That's what this is calling us to, to pursue unity by being united with Jesus. Be of the same mind, same love. It's speaking here to partiality of loving all of God's people, not just some of God's people, even the weird ones you don't get along with. And everyone knows a weird Christian. And if you don't know a weird Christian, sorry to say this, you are the weird Christian that we all know. Okay, And we are all called to love each other. No partiality in this thing. You love the poor Christian. You love the rich Christian. You love the white Christian. You love the black Christian. You, you love the church. All of them. No partiality. Same love. And then he talks about being a full accord. Full accord. It's one in spirit. Might be what your translation says. One in spirit. And friends, if we are in Christ, there's one Christ, one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one spirit. And if you are in Christ, we are one in spirit. Because the same spirit of God that's living inside of me is the same spirit of God that's living inside of one of our elders, Monty, down here. It's the same spirit of God that's living inside my friend Stan, that's living inside my friend Zach, that's living inside my friend Peter. I mean, all of it's the same spirit of God. We are one in spirit. We're one. We're connected. We're, we, we are united. We just need to realize and recognize that. He also says one mind. One mind here speaks of purpose. One purpose, one thing, one motive. One thing on top of mind. One agenda for Paul throughout the book in Philippians and Colossians, all the different books that he wrote. One goal, glory of Jesus. What's the purpose of our life? Is to glorify Jesus in everything we say and everything we do. With our great reality comes a great responsibility. Each and every one of us should pursue unity with God's people. Second responsibility he gives us. He tells us to be humble. He tells us to be humble. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The selfish ambition is another weird word in our passage this morning. Because outside of the New Testament, it only occurs one time in history, and it's talking about politicians. Now, I don't mean this as like a blanket statement over all politicians, so please don't be like, ah, Thomas hates Paul, Paul, and I don't. Okay, but what this word here is tied to is people rising to power for their own gain. That's what this word speaks to, selfish ambition. It's the type of ambition that seeks glory for self instead of glory for Jesus. 
It's the type of ambition that says, I don't care what I have to do to reach to the top. If i got to step on someone's throat and step over some other people and make people feel really bad and ruin their life, that's fine for them, but I am going to the top. It's selfish ambition or conceit. It's excessive pride. This type of ambition seeks to bring glory to self. And don't take this verse to mean I should never work hard because that's not what God says. Whatever you do, work at it with what? All your heart. As working for who? The Lord, not for men. That's what God calls us to, to bust our butts, work as hard as we possibly can for God's glory and not for our own. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, second part of verse 3. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. What's humility? Uh, C.S. Lewis said it like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Okay, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You, Christian, are not a doormat. You, Christian, are not a punching bag. You, Christian, have dignity, you have value, you have worth, you have significance. Well, how do you know that? How do we determine value in something? Three different ways I'll give you real quick, and each of us can find value because of these things. First thing, what's the image on it? If you're going watch shopping and you see a fossil and a Rolex, which are not going to be in the same watch shop, by the way, um, you're going to know one of those has more value immediately. Why? Because of that Rolex image that's on it. Whose image is on you? It's the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image. We were made like God. That's the image on you. You are infinitely valuable. How else do we determine worth? Well, how much did you pay for it? Again, if you're going watch shopping and you see the fossil next to the Rolex, which one's worth more? How much did you pay for it? This one cost you 200 This one cost you a whole lot more than 200 What's it worth? It's how much it was, it, it, it was paid for. Well, how much are you worth? 1 Corinthians 6 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Who paid for you? Jesus paid for you. Are you worthy? Are you significant? Are you valuable? Absolutely. Why? The image of God is on you, and Christ himself paid for you. How else do we determine value? Well, the sentimental value. Things that really aren't worth a whole lot, but for whatever reason, they are worth a lot to you. My wife ran track as a little kid, set like some state and national records and cool stuff like that. She still has all of her track shirts. And I'm sure if I sold them, no one would buy them. It'd actually probably be better if I just cut them up into pieces and we used them to wash our cars uh, and stuff like that, but she won't have it. Why? There's sentimental value. She has affection towards them. She likes them. She loves them. She doesn't want to get rid of them. Well, we covered that. That's the way God feels towards you. He loves you. He cares for you. He has affection to his burden for you. Are you valuable? Of course you are. You are made in the image of God. You are bought with the price. God cares for you, loves you, wants a relationship with you. But here's the deal. You're not the only one. Everyone, everyone is that person. 
So here's what he says, in humility, remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself because you are image of God, bought with a price, God loves you. But thinking of yourself less, he says, more, count others more significant than yourself. Treat other people better than you think they probably deserve to be treated. Treat other people how you'd like to be treated. That's Jesus. That's the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. He just reiterates it here. We should be humble. With our great reality comes a great responsibility. Be humble. Third thing, third responsibility is to serve others. Serve others. Verse 4, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He gives us a do not and a do. Just like he did in verse 3. Do not look out only for you. Why? Because you got that covered. We're good at that. Just looking out for number one. Right? I just, well, it's self-interest, I, you know. Self-preservation. I got to make sure I do the right thing. Got to do what's best for me. Self-promotion. I just got to put one foot forward so I can be a little bit ahead of the rest of the pack here so the focus is on me. We're good at that. We're good at meeting our needs. We're good at finding out what we want. We're good at finding out what we need. But he says, do not look only. Yes, take care of yourself. Look to your needs. All those things. But life is more than that. Life is more than that. It also involves others, putting others first and serving others. Do not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's looking out for other people. Instead of just looking out for ourselves, we need to look out, and that's a concentrated effort, by the way. We are typically, on most days, actively seeking to look out at what's best for us. What if we mindset shift and say, what would it look like for me to actively look out for those around me? This is what he's calling us to, not just our own interests, but the interests of others. Jesus did it like this in John chapter 13. Uh, back in the day, you could see, think of the disciples and all the people uh, wearing like crummy Birkenstocks. This is their shoe type of, of the day. They didn't have Jordans, they had bad Birkenstocks, real thin soles and like leather shoelaces. Not real good roads, not great highway systems, so shared the roads with donkeys, horses, goats, sheep, pigs, all the other stuff. Okay, and they don't have the nice sanitation uh, street sweepers and all the stuff like we do today, so the roads are nasty. So combine nasty roads with bad Birkenstocks and you end up with real gross feet. Okay, feeding themselves, yeah, kind of gross. Uh, combined with these roads, really disgusting. And then, think of okay, so we got that picture over here. And now let's set a dinner table. Okay, and it's not our dinner table where it's like um, multiple pieces of cutlery, too many plates, too many glasses, where you're just really not sure what to do with your hands at that point. We're talking like down low to the bottom, and maybe you're sitting on a little pillow with like your feet to the side, like you're riding a side saddle on a horse or something like that, right? Um, which means as I'm eating dinner, my friend's nasty, gross feet, pretty close to my dinner plate. So what they do? They would have like this foot washing thing before every meal. And typically, there'd be a servant off in the corner whose job was to wash the nasty before the meal so we can enjoy our meal together. All the disciples sit down and no one has washed the nasty. And they're trying to figure out who's going to do it. I am above this because I'm Peter. Right? On this rock, I'll build my church. Sorry, guys. 
they're waiting around, and then who is the one who rises from the table, um, goes to the corner, takes the position of a servant, and then proceeds to wash all of their feet? It's Jesus. Tim quoted earlier, why would Jesus do such a thing? Because Jesus, the Son of Man, who has all authority, all power, all rule, the only kingdom that will never end, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve. He came to put other people's interests before his own. Christians, we have a fantastic reality. We have a great reality in Christ. So far, reality has been encouragement. If you've experienced God coming alongside of you or God's people coming alongside of you, if you've experienced comfort, comfort both from God and comfort also from God's people, if you've experienced participation in the Spirit, knowing that God's with you, not just calling you to go do impossible things by yourself, but helping you do the things He's asked you to do. If your experience has been affection, knowing that God loves you, and let me remind you, God loves you. He loves you. And if your experience has been sympathy, if that's your reality, then the responsibility for all of us is to pursue unity, to be humble, and to serve others. I'm going to invite the band up. Um, There's three really big things. It's kind of unfair to just say, hey, just do these three things. Just pursue perfect unity with people. Stop being so prideful. Just be humble. And just be a servant. Right? Can we set any more lofty goals this morning, Thomas? Anything else impossible you'd like me to try? Let me take those three things. Um, and boil them down just to one. Let's just be like Jesus. Let's just be like Jesus. Jesus pursued unity. He did something about it. Right? He didn't count equality a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, not just any death, even death on a cross. He pursued unity with us. Jesus humbled himself all throughout his life. Jesus served others. The goal in glorifying Christ for us, we should just try to live like Jesus. This last week, um, I bought a bunch of these What Would Jesus Do bracelets. You guys remember these? Did you ever wear one of these things? Um, We've got a bunch of them for you this morning. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Uh, I remember as a kid, this was, was transformative for me in my life. So just ask the question, man, what would Jesus do in this situation? And it changes everything. I went to brunch with my wife on Thursday, and as I was taking my credit card out, the little tip thing came up and said, would you like to tip? And of course, my what would Jesus do bracelet's on my credit card hand, so I'm thinking like, ah! (laughs) He probably would tip. And probably not the 10% one. It's probably the 15 or 20. Oh, goodness. Jesus, you're making me change my life. But it's everything. It's when the baby's crying at night. Man, what would Jesus do? Right? It's when your spouse has a hard day after work and they come home. What would Jesus do? Even if you had a hard day too. If we were to just ask that question, man, what would Jesus do? How have I seen Jesus in my life? And then how can I be that to the other people around me? Friends, I think it will radically transform the way that you and I live our life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming and living the perfect life that we couldn't live. 
And Jesus, thanks for being a perfect model to us on how we should live. God, we're grateful for the clear instruction you give us on how to follow you best, and we are grateful that you have gifted us the Holy Spirit who participates in our life, who's not just calling us to do the impossible by ourselves, but you are empowering us to go and live the lives that you've called us to live. Jesus, we want to glorify you in everything we say and everything we do, even now as we respond in worship. May you receive all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and stand. We're going to sing one more song as we close. Um, for Paul, what was top of mind? All of life was all for Christ. Our lives are meant to glorify Jesus. And the best way for us to glorify Jesus is by living the type of life that Jesus lived. Now here's the deal. The Bible says that uh, if I am in Christ and Christ is in me, the Bible also says that I am dead to sin and I am alive in Christ. And the life that I now live, I live in faith for his glory and his glory alone. Friends, this morning, as we close our time in worship, may each of us get excited about what Christ has done for us. May we glorify him, worship him, praise him as we close in worship now. Amen. We serve an amazing, amazing God. This morning, I want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus. If you have not experienced a real, authentic, uh, this reality of life that we talk about of having in Christ, we want that for you. We want you to live the life that God has for you. Uh, and to do that, rather simple. You profess faith, you trust Jesus, you give your life over to him. And if that interests you, um, we just want to help. We just want to help you do that. And I'll be down front uh, if you want to come talk about that. I'd love to help you um, begin a relationship with Jesus. You can head out to the Info Central afterwards. Um, asking the question, what would Jesus do, involves us knowing Jesus. Um, so this morning, if you're feeling like you don't know how to accurately answer that question, we have some next steps for you to take so you can better dive into your relationship with Christ and get to know him for real. Not just know about him, but actually know who he is. As I said uh, earlier, we have a bunch of these What Would Jesus Do bracelets for you this morning. Um, there's several different spots to pick them up. They're at each aisle as you exit. So front section, they're just in the middle aisle. Rear section, they're out by the door. Uh, lots of color options so if you could do us a favor and have an idea of what color you want when you get to the box that would be super helpful um, just grab one for now we don't have enough for everyone you can buy like 20 of them for 10 bucks on Amazon so go ahead and do that I'll encourage you put one of these on this week and ask that question man what would Jesus do in our attempt to glorify him in everything we say and everything we do the best way for us to do that is just by living the life that Christ came and lived so Highlands go out there live that life for his glory and for the good of those around us. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.